Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 118, Monday, Victory Monday. The Badgers won on Saturday. The Packers won on Sunday. What year is it? What year I, is it? What year is it? 1995? 1996? Isn't 95 the answer in that clip in the Jumanji clip? Let's play it through. Uh, 1995. That's what it feels like, 1995. We used to have it this way, everybody. We used to come back on Mondays with a big old smile on our face at the office or at the factory or wherever you're doing work because the Badgers won and the Packers won and there were division title implications and Rose Bowl ramifications. This is how it used to be not that long ago. We'll break it all down. Packers get the win. Chargers kind of gave it away a little bit too. A lot of drop passes for the Charger wide receiving crew. Whatever. You take the win. They're four and six. See where they go from here with a difficult matchup against the eight and two Lions in Detroit on Thanksgiving Day. We'll break all of that down. The Badgers do get a win on Senior Day. They got one out after falling down by two touchdowns. They are bowl eligible for the 22nd straight year. We will discuss that. The Bucks had a good weekend too. Wins on Friday and Saturday. On Saturday, they beat a Mavericks team that was nine and three going into that game and had two days of rest leading up to that game. Meanwhile, the Bucks were off of a back-to-back. And we will talk about Brandon Woodruff, just a sad end to the career of one of my favorite Brewer pitchers or Brewer players, I guess, overall. I think a lot of fans feel that way as they non-tender him on Friday, just outright released. We'll talk about that, too. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, Wisconsin record-breaking run. Morgan a smash up the middle. Base hit the center. Here comes Gomez around third. A throw and the Brewers win. Here's the snap. He looks. He throws. It's a interception. And there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive gets inside. Leads in. Back away. It's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. And a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, Packers got it done, everybody. We set on... Friday's podcast, if they didn't win on Sunday against the Chargers, a real chance they fall to 3-9, which I also realize many fans out there were thinking, yes, that's what we want. We want to be 3-9. We want to be 3-14 and and get the number two overall pick and draft a quarterback and all that kind of stuff. I can't root for my team to lose. I've never been able to do it. I will not start now. I'll probably never have that happen in my life. The Packers got a win, and it was a beautiful day at Lambeau Field. I had a bunch of friends. My wife's cousins have season tickets, Milwaukee season tickets. It's a Milwaukee season ticket game, and they posted pictures on Facebook. I don't think you could have asked for a better day, even though the team was 3-6 and six going into it, and it's been such a lackluster year in so many different facets. To sit at Lambeau in mid to late November, and it's a noon kickoff and 45 degrees, and the sun is out. I saw they had cuts to the crowd where people were just wearing jerseys and jeans. That's maybe a Wisconsin Midwest thing when it's 45, 46, 47 degrees in November to not have a coat on or a long sleeve of any kind. It looked comfortable. And you watch the Packers get a win. That's good. Like we talked about coming out of the Rams game. I get it. There are two segments of the fan base. One that want them to tank and get a really high draft pick. 
One that I belong to that cannot root for a team to tank, that does think there is value in a young team learning how to win and learning how to close games. We saw another example of that, hopefully, on Sunday. And then going forward, that will help them. Maybe for the remainder of this year, maybe going into next year. It is important to learn how to close games and to win games at this level. And they did that again on Sunday. 23-20 to 20 was the final. Should we start with Jordan Love? It seems like that's got to be the starting point for every Packer conversation this year. The haters and the losers, of which there are many. The haters and losers, of which there are many. There are many. Didn't hear a lot from them yesterday. Heard a lot from them after the two interceptions in the fourth quarter against the Steelers. I'm not sure if either one of those were 100% his fault. Certainly not the last one that game. That led to all of the people that think that Jordan Love is not the guy, and they've made that determination by week two or week three. I, I, I know we've said it many, many times on this podcast, and we'll say it again when we talk about the Bucks and how they're starting to bounce back, and maybe Adrian Griffin is the guy. There was that conversation all last week about the, he's not the guy, he needs to be fired, move on immediately. It seems to be a real epidemic in the social media era of fans that just want to immediately cut bait on somebody just to be right about something. And I ultimately, as we've talked about this, that's where I think the core tenant of this whole thing belongs. People want to be right about something, and they want to sound smart, and they want to be the first to have it. That is also part of the take era we live in, where you want to have a take, you want to be the first to have it, so that if it goes the way that you think it's going to go, You can say, see, I told you, I told you, I've been saying it for weeks, I've been saying it for months. And it is always an easier take to be negative. It is always easier to say Jordan Love is not the quarterback because how many quarterbacks, how many guys are drafted that fail? 80%? You have an 80% chance of being right if by week two or three you say that Jordan Love is not the guy. You get to say, I said it first. And you have a pretty high probability of being correct if you say a young quarterback does not have it. Because a lot of them don't. And for a first-year head coach, Adrian Griffin, for a championship-caliber team, if you say he's not the guy, you can say you're right if this team doesn't make the finals. That's a pretty high likelihood that you're going to be successful in your take because you've got this championship-caliber team. And you can lean on that if they fall in the second round of the playoffs or in the Eastern Conference Finals. You can bring that take back because you've got a title-contending team and a first-year head coach. I just think it's a rush to be right, a rush to want to be right about something. Well, the people that have said that Jordan Love is not the guy and they're convinced he's not the guy and they need to move on or put Sean Clifford in or tank for a higher draft pick and get Drake May or get Caleb Williams or whatever, the last three weeks, it's been a little bit tougher to be that Jordan Love hater. He got better in the win against L.A. three weeks ago in the 20-3 win. I think he got better at Pittsburgh. Yes, he threw two interceptions late. The one that he threw to Christian Watson was an underthrow that was intercepted. You could argue whether or not Watson needs to go back and fight for that ball. You can argue whether or not it was even a good decision to throw it, whatever. He had those two picks, but his deep ball in Pittsburgh, the completion percentage wasn't there. The deep ball completion percentage was there in Pittsburgh, and he was having such a good game until those two picks in the fourth quarter where he had a quarterback rating over 100, and then those two picks just deep-sixed his whole game. Then he comes back this past Sunday, yesterday, 27 of 40, 68% completion percentage for everybody that is agonizing and living and dying with all the individual stats. 68%, two touchdowns, no picks, no turnovers. Again, like in Pittsburgh, he was connecting on the deep ball more. For those that live and die with quarterback rating, and I was getting into it with a couple fans on Facebook after the Steeler game where he came out of there with a quarterback rating of 71.8. Oh, that's a terrible rating. Not the best way to evaluate a quarterback, kind of like wins and losses for a pitcher in baseball nowadays. 
He has a great quarterback rating on Sunday of 108.5, a QBR of around 55. His QBR was actually down 20 points as compared to the game at Pittsburgh. That shows you how good his game at Pittsburgh was. Overall, another step forward. We're seeing more progress. The game is slowing down for him a little bit. His receivers are making plays. The offensive line has been blocking a little bit better. I would say not great on Sunday, especially run blocking. Now, you are down to, by the time we get to what, the early third quarter? When did Aaron Jones go down? And it looks like Jones did avoid major injury. That looked catastrophic when he went down. When they showed that replay, the way his knee turned, the way the cart had to take him off, the way he was crying on the cart heading to the locker room, it felt like that was going to be an ACL injury, and not only was it going to cost him that game, it maybe cost him the rest of his year, and when you look to the future and an almost 30-year-old running back, at that point, you're starting to think, was that the last play we see from Aaron Jones in a Green Bay Packer jersey? He said at the end of the game, and LaFleur said it too, that he avoided major injur- a major injury to that knee. And I think Aaron Jones' phrasing was that he finally caught a break and he's going to be out maybe a little bit of time. I would not think he's going to be on the field on Thursday. That's pure speculation on my point. If he's out there, great. Feels very unlikely on a short week, but it does sound like it's only going to be short term for Aaron Jones. Well, by the time you had Aaron Jones up and Emmanuel Wilson came in, he instantly got hurt. His shoulder popped out of socket. Then you're down just to A.J. Dillon. The run blocking, though, was not great overall, and I think the pass blocking was okay, but not as good as it was against Pittsburgh and not as good as it was against the Rams. A part of that for the offensive line, to me, is they're just rotating too many guys in and out. I get that they're trying to get a look at a lot of different guys. If you talk to any offensive line coach, any football coach, but any offensive line coach or any offensive lineman, it's all about continuity. It's all about knowing who the guy is going to be next to you. And the more reps you get and the muscle memory you build up, you can anticipate what that guy next to you is going to do or what that guy on the outside is going to do. And you all start to work together as a unit. That's hard to do with the approach the Packers took yesterday of rotating Yash Nijman and Rashid Walker at left tackle. Sean Ryan was getting in for a couple of different series and John Runyon was coming out. And then they'd rotate it back. I think it's hard to get a rhythm like that. But I thought the pass blocking and the run blocking may be a half step or a quarter step or an eighth of a step back from where they were against Pittsburgh. You got to love what you're seeing from the offense, though. The last couple of weeks, it does seem like they're turning a little bit of a corner. Jordan Love now on the year has 18 total touchdowns, 10 interceptions, over 2,000 yards. He throws for 322 yards on Sunday. That is the first Packer quarterback to throw for over 300 yards in a game since 2021, which seems impossible given that Aaron Rodgers was your quarterback for the second half of 2021 and all of 2022. That's how subpar with the injured thumb his season was last year. First Packer QB over 300 yards passing in almost two calendar years. And he's coming off of now back-to-back career highs in yardage, 289 yards against Pittsburgh, 322 against the Chargers yesterday. And again, a two-touchdown, no-pick day. The touchdown to Dobbs, maybe a touch overthrown. But what you're seeing with these young receivers now is what we were hoping to see as the year progressed. Early in the year, these receivers were not fighting for footballs. That's one where Dobbs, the ball was maybe a touch underthrown. But instead of waiting for the ball to come to him, he just snatched it. He just took it for that touchdown. The touchdown throw to Watson was on the mark. Love's biggest miss of the day, in my mind, was the second-to-last offensive drive, I believe, He had Luke Musgrave on a beautiful route on the near sideline who got behind his defender, 
And it might have been an 85 or 86-yard touchdown if he completes it. He overthrew it. That was his biggest sale of the day. The feet in the pocket seem calmer. I don't know how many people out there watch the J.T. O'Sullivan, former Packer backup quarterback, second and third stringer from back in the day. He does these quarterback school videos on YouTube, and that's one thing he's talked about. He's bullish on Jordan Love. One thing that he breaks down a lot, though, if you watch those 20-minute, 25-minute long videos where he breaks down every quarterback's week from that week in the NFL – The happy feet are what are getting him in trouble. The feet have been calmer recently for Jordan Love. We are seeing the progression from Jordan Love. He is getting better and more confident every week. One thing I love about Jordan Love, he does seem kind of unflappable. Even when he's making mistakes, he has a very even demeanor. He celebrates a little after a touchdown. It doesn't seem like he gets too high or too low, and his teammates have spoken to that over the course of the year. Whatever he becomes as a quarterback in the NFL in the future or in this season— it doesn't seem like he rides that emotional wave too much, which can be a very good thing for that high-profile spot of being the quarterback in the NFL. He doesn't seem to get bullied around too much, or he doesn't get too emotional about anything, whether it's good or bad. You've got to feel good about him coming out of the game, and he is trending now towards a guy who is going to be the starter next year. I'm not sure what you look at in terms of an extension. What you want to avoid if you're a Packer fan is the Daniel Jones extension, where the Giants were kind of backed into that corner last year. Jones had a career year, and he won a playoff game on the road, and they felt like, okay, you look around the quarterback landscape in the NFL, not too many people were putting up the numbers Daniel Jones was last year, and winning a playoff game on the road, they gave him that massive $130 or $140 million extension, and this year the team and he both stink on ice, and now you're locked into this quarterback for four years or five years, paying him a ton of money, and we don't even know what he is. That's what you want to avoid. It feels very likely, though, based on what we've seen in total this year and specifically in the past three weeks, if he can continue every week to look like the quarterback we've seen in the last three weeks, he is going to be your starter for the remainder of the year, and he is going to be your starter next year. For those that don't think he's the guy, that's bad news. (laughs) Bad news for you. I believe you are not, barring injury, you're not going to see them make a move this year, obviously. And based on what we've seen, I would imagine some kind of extension is coming and he is going to be the starter next year. Feeling pretty good about him coming out of yesterday. I'm not feeling as good about him as I am about the wide receiver room, though, and the tight end room. Whatever happens for the remainder of this year, We feel real good about the young wide receivers and the young tight ends on this team. Jaden Reed's a guy. He's their number one. He's a rookie wide receiver. He is their number one. He doesn't have the height maybe that Watson has or Dobbs has. He just makes plays. He had the touchdown run where he showcased that elite burst button, that turbo button, that X button. And he also made several key catches yesterday. He continues to develop and evolve and get better and more comfortable. He is the go-to guy. Dontavian Wicks, he led the team in yardage yesterday, 90-plus yards on three catches. That run he had at the end of, was it the third quarter or early fourth quarter? I think it was the drive that ended with the Dobbs touchdown. He had that catch over the middle where he bounced off of a couple of guys and then ran an extra 30 yards downfield. These young receivers are starting to get comfortable and do that. In week two or three, Dontavian Wicks makes that catch over the middle for 10 yards, and he stopped there. They're getting more comfortable now with fighting through contact, getting upfield, yards after the catch, staying alive, keeping a play alive. He was another had another great day with three catches and 91 yards. 
Dobbs had five for 53 and a touchdown. The guy catches touchdowns, everybody. Seven touchdowns on the year, 10 touchdowns in his young career already, and five catches for 53 yards on the day. Hey, Tucker Craft, he did his first Lambeau leap. It didn't count, but he got his first ever Lambeau leap. He almost tiptoed his way down the sideline. We haven't seen much from him in the receiving game this year, more of a blocker, two catches, 32 yards. Luke Musgrave is going to break the tight end record for catches in a year for a rookie for the Packers. Four catches, 28 yards. There was that misfire that we just talked about where he probably, if he catches that, you're looking at a five-catch, 100-yard, maybe touchdown day. Watson had two catches. You'd love to see them get him more involved still. Good to see him get a touchdown catch, though. Two for 21 and that touchdown. Malik Heath had a reception on the day as well. But of all the things, all the young stuff on this team, and they are the youngest team in the league. I know we've been over that every week. Going forward right now on November 20th, looking toward next year, 2024 and 2025, the area of the team that I feel the best about right now is the receiving room and the tight end room. A.J. Dillon had to pick up the slack. 14 carries. It was tough sledding, though. 14 carries, 29 yards. Reed had three carries for 46 yards. You may see Jaden Reed get more carries on Thursday, depending on what the health is of Emmanuel Wilson and Aaron Jones. You could probably see Keyshawn Nixon getting some carries on Thursday. They may have to sign somebody before Thursday's game. But Dillon had 14 carries, 29 yards. Dillon was okay in the receiving game. Had four catches for 32 yards. Let's talk about, do you want to talk about special teams or defense? Neither of them are great. We'll talk about special teams real quick. Rich Bisaccia just continued continues to see this unit make mistakes. Second year now in Green Bay, highest paid special teams coach in the league. They're missing extra points. They get two penalties on the opening kick return. They are slightly better than they were in 2021 when they maybe fielded the most disastrous special teams unit in the history of the NFL. I'm talking going back even to the 1920s and 1930s. That was one of the worst special teams units that we have ever seen on an NFL field. And it cost them a trip to the NFC Championship game single-handedly. They've gotten a little better from there. You've seen better flashes. I think back to last year, it seemed like the improvements were starting to settle in. And Keyshawn Nixon was an all-pro returner. He had a couple of good returns on Sunday, 2-4-60. But overall, penalties, missed kicks. I don't know what's going on with Anders Carlson. Where is he at now on the year? Missed extra point, missed field goal yesterday. 52-yarder, which he just wedged. He's 14 of 17, 82%. I don't know. He has now missed back-to-back extra points in back-to-back weeks. And, hey, guess what? It impacted the spread. What did I tell you last Monday coming off of the loss in Pittsburgh where Carlson missed an extra point? I told you, somewhat hyperbolically, that every extra point that has been missed in an NFL game in the history of the NFL has impacted the gambling line of that game. Whether it's total points or spread, they did it again on Sunday. He misses that extra point, which, again, changes the dynamic of the game where late in the game – Like in Pittsburgh, if he makes that extra point, the Packers are in field goal range to maybe tie it. In this instance, the Chargers were trying to get into field goal range to tie it and get it to overtime, where if he hits that extra point, it's a four-point game and they have to get in the end zone. The over-under on total points, 43.5. The over the total point total on Sunday, 43. Boy, that extra point would have been good if you, like me, had the over on 43.5. As soon as he missed it, I thought, well, that's it. <laughs> There's no way. that That's going to hurt me at some point. I guess the raw numbers aren't terrible. 82.5% field goals, 90% extra points. It seems as though I've seen some people say he's hitting the rookie wall. Do you buy that for a kicker, though? 
They're only 10 games into the year. He kicked 10, 11, 12 games, 13 games at Auburn. He shouldn't be hitting the rookie wall yet. And I don't know that a rookie wall is even something a kicker can use as an excuse. If you're a middle linebacker, if you're a running back, if you're a wide receiver or a quarterback and you're taking a beating for six or seven more games in a regular season in the NFL than you're accustomed to in college, that's one thing. Do kickers hit the rookie wall mentally maybe? I don't know. I don't buy that as an excuse. Special teams not great again on Sunday. And the defense, even though they held the Chargers to 20 points, also not good. They got lucky on Sunday that there were so many drop passes. If I'm Justin Herbert, let's live in a world where I'm six foot four, <laughs> have have a rock chin line or jawline and a full head of hair, and I'm an NFL starting quarterback. Let's just live in that moment for a second. Okay. It's fun. Fun to think about. He had so many drops on Sunday. Keenan Allen, of all people, dropped what would have been a touchdown reception that ends in a field goal drive for the Chargers. That cost him four points. They had the drop on the opening drive where they went for it on fourth down, tight end over the middle, hit him right between the eight and the nine for a, what would have been a 20-yard gain in first down, dropped that. And the most egregious of all of them on that final drive where they are battling to get into field goal range, that first-round rookie draft pick, he had burned Valentine. Valentine, I thought, overall a decent game. In that play, though, he seemed to just hit the brakes a bit, and his receiver went right past him. If that is caught, that could either be a go-ahead touchdown. It certainly gets them into field goal range. He muffs that one. So many drops in big moments for that Charger defense or offense that bails out the Packer defense. This is going to be one of those misleading games where you look at the raw numbers and say, well, they held them to 20 points, and they got a couple of sacks. Rashawn Gary had a sack. Who else had a sack? Carl Brooks, the rookie defensive lineman, had a sack. Kenny Clark knocked it down Matumbo style. No, 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 not today was able to knock that last pass down that ended the game on fourth and one. But the Chargers, I mean, they left at least 10 to 14 points on the board where they probably would have been low to mid-30s point total. Packers get the win. The one thing that I hate about that is that I do think Joe Barry is slowly saving his job in Green Bay, and he's going to be back next year even though if you watch these games. And we talked about it when we had the podcast where we were discussing that they have the eighth-ranked defense in the league. That that seemed like a misnomer given what we've seen so far from this defense, and they had played such bad offenses. You saw Pittsburgh, a terrible offense, be able to get it going against this Packer defense. The Chargers, like we just said, they probably should have scored 34 points on Sunday. They put up 20, and it's mainly because of wide-open drops from their wide receivers, not anything the Joe Barry defense was doing. I would still like for them to move on from Joe Barry. We are going to soak in the win, though, and just worry about that. 23 to 20, the Packers are 4 and 6 on the season now, and coming out of the game, the major injury conversation did revolve around Aaron Jones. They had somebody else go down, right, and not come back. I know Emmanuel Wilson did not come back. Sounds like he probably won't play on Thursday. That's next up for the Packers. Detroit was able to escape. We'll do an NFL rundown here in a second. Detroit was able to escape the Bears. Looked like the Bears had that one in hand. Lions rally in the fourth quarter. Two touchdowns in the fourth quarter to get ahead. They get a two-point conversion, and they get a safety. They almost covered the actual spread of, what, six or six and a half against the Bears? Lions get the win. They are 8-2 and two on the year. Can Matt LaFleur get past Dan Campbell? He's never beaten Campbell, right? Dan Campbell's got Matt LaFleur and those perfectly groomed eyebrows right in his front pocket, right in my pocket. The Packers open as 7.5-point underdogs on Thanksgiving Day. You just don't love the matchup of that offense against this Packer defense, even though they're coming off of a win and the Packer defense had to get a stop late, and they did. 
again, a lot of that was because of drops from Charger wide receivers. When you look at that Lions offense, and it is loaded with a couple of talented running backs, a whole cadre of wide receivers that they can go to, I don't know. It doesn't bode well to me that the Packer defense will be able to get stops on Thanksgiving Day. The question is, like what we talked about in this Charger game, even though it didn't quite play out that way, remember on Friday's podcast we said the Chargers are probably going to put 30-plus points up, and they should have. The question was heading into the weekend, can the Packer offense keep pace with them? Can the Packer offense put 30-plus points up to win? Turns out they didn't have to. In Detroit, I think the conversation is the same. That Lions offense against this Packer defense on a fast track when they're at home and the crowd's going nuts and it's Thanksgiving Day and the Lions finally have a good team on Thanksgiving Day. You know it's going to be raucous over there. Can the Packer defense get stops? I don't know if they can. Can the Packer offense put up 27 to 30 points against this Lions defense? The Lions defense has tailed off a bit. No pun intended. They were terrible in the first half of last year. Then they made that run at the end of the year where the defense was better. Defense was better to begin the year. We're seeing more, though, the defense playing the way they did in the first half of 2022. The way the Packer offense is trending with that Beckett's green arrow up next to their name, it feels like they're going to be able to score 20-plus. Can they score 28-plus? Can they score 30-plus? which I think they're going to have to do to win this game. This is a game you're going to have to win 34-31, 31-28, I believe. Again, unless Joe Barry, unless the Lions receivers pull a Chargers and just drop every pass in their vicinity, it feels like you're going to have to put at least 31 on the board if you want to win on Thursday. They are seven-and-a-half-point underdogs. It'll be an 11:30 kickoff Thanksgiving Day on Fox. Luckily, I we are hosting, and I will be cooking. So if it is a frustrating beginning to the game, I will be otherwise occupied. And if it's not, I'm going to have to turn the radio on or get the iPad going and put that right next to the stove. That is coming up on Thursday. Now, if the Packers win this game, I we had a text on the B93 morning show say, don't look now, John, but the Packers are a game and a half out of a wild card spot. Seven teams get in now. I will be honest with you, I had not even looked at that. The Vikings lose late in Denver. The Broncos are coming on. They're 5-5 five and five on the year. And the, and the Raiders, despite their loss yesterday, they're 5-6 and six now. Those two losses, which at the time looked terrible, still don't look good, but they look a little better given that the two teams the Packers lost to in Denver and in Las Vegas have kind of gotten things turned around. Denver got that win 21-20. That drops the Vikings to 6-5. and five. Right now, the Vikings would be the last team in the seven seed in the NFC at six and five Packers are with the Rams and the Falcons all sitting at four and six, a game and a half out. And yes, you have a matchup against the Vikings where if you somehow stayed in the fight and you were getting down in the last week or two of the year and you win that game, I don't know. I'm not saying anything like that right now. I do think the Packers, it was fun to watch them win. I think they're fortunate that the Chargers dropped so many big passes and couldn't capitalize on big moments on Sunday. I love what I saw from the receivers and the offense and Jordan Love. I'm not taking it any further than that. If they go into Detroit and they beat an 8-2 and two Lions team and Matt LaFleur gets his first win against Dan Campbell, is he 0-4 or 0-6? 0-4 for sure. Is he 0-6? No. I'll have to go back and look. If they are able to do that, and they get a win against an 8-2 and two division-leading team at their place and improve to 5-6, and six, and if maybe other things fall their way this coming weekend, then we might come back on Monday's podcast one week from today, and we might be starting to look at those wild card standings a bit closer. 
as we discussed on Friday, my feeling was if you didn't beat the Chargers, you were going to fall to 3-9. and nine. Well, they beat the Chargers, and now you've got this Detroit game. You've got Kansas City with Patrick Mahomes and Kelsey and Taylor Swift coming to Lambeau Field Sunday night, December 3rd. Feels fairly unlikely you're going to get a win there. After that, though, you're in New York against the Giants. That's a winnable game. Tampa at home, to me, looks like a winnable game now. At Carolina on Christmas Eve, winnable game. Minnesota, maybe a winnable game, and you end the year at home against Chicago. This game on Thursday is a little bit of a pivot point. If you win this game, then I do think you might be in a playoff conversation, and we're not going to be talking about mock drafts and top 10 picks or top 5 picks anymore. A lot rides on what the result of this game will be on Thursday. 11.30 kickoff in Detroit. Let's run through the NFL real quick. Close that out. We will close that out. We had, what else was going on? Browns and Steelers in a rock fight, as they tend to play. And the Browns now without Deshaun Watson for the year. They get a win, though. That defense, 13-10 win. They're 7-3 on the year. Bears almost upset the Lions, and the Lions almost were able to cover that 6.5-point spread. They win 31-26. to Dolphins just got by the Raiders in Miami, 20-13. Our parlay paid off. We ended up gambling 3-2 and on the weekend. We won both of our college picks, and I was sitting at 7-0-1 in my last eight picks. And I was a good Sunday away from saying we were the hottest gambling podcast in the country. The over did not hit because of Anders Carlson in the Packer-Charger game. The over did not hit in the Texans-Cardinals game. We did hit our three-team parlay, though, and the Dolphins were a part of that. 20-13 win at home against the Raiders. Giants beat the Commanders 31-19. Cowboys easily disposed of the Panthers in Carolina 33-10. Jaguars, good response after getting stomped by San Francisco. They beat the Titans 34-14. They're 7-3. Texans with C.J. Stroud having a weird day. Two-touchdown, three-pick game. They win, though, at home 21-16. They might be a playoff team. Niners continue to roll 27-14 over Tampa. Bills get a bounce back over the Jets. Tim Boyle got in for the Jets at the end of that game. You see Aaron Rodgers is talking about coming back by week 16. There's no way. If he is back in three months, did he have an Achilles injury? Did he fully tear that Achilles if he's back in three months? The truthers want to know. I feel like he is setting this up where he knows this Jets team is not going to be in playoff contention by that point. And he can then say, well, I was going to be back in week 16, but then the team wasn't competitive, or the team is 4-8 and eight or 4-9. and nine. doesn't make sense at this point to push it. That's what I think he's doing. Oh, I'm, going to be, I'm targeting week 16. And then when they're five games under 500, he can say, well, it doesn't make sense to push it at this point. Bills stomp the Jets 32-6. to six. The Rams get a win against the Seahawks at home 17-16. And as we talked about, the Broncos beat the Vikings 21-20. to 20. And, yeah, if you are one of the most optimistic fans, one of the most optimistic Packer fans out there, that does help this team when you start to maybe think about could they get back in the playoff race. That Viking loss helps. All right, let's talk about the Badgers. They also get a win on Saturday. It looked early like we were going to be dropped another two feet into the ground. We've been using that metaphor a bit when they lost at Indiana after the encouraging loss to Ohio State. You go and lose at Indiana. That felt like rock bottom. But wait, there's more than the week after that. You're at home against Northwestern, and not only do you lose, you no-show in that game and get your break speed off 24-10, what really should have been 24-3. They got that late touchdown just to make it look a little better on Saturday against Northwestern. Got lowered a little bit further in there. And even Luke Fickle said after that Northwestern loss, hopefully that's rock bottom. That's got to be rock bottom. Then they come out on Saturday against Nebraska. A couple of 5-5 five and five teams, primetime on NBC. 
and they're down two touchdowns before you can blink. And Nebraska could not have made it look any easier scoring those touchdowns. The Padger offense looked incompetent on those first two drives. Special teams errors. And you thought, are we going to get lowered another two feet in the ground? We're going to get killed by Nebraska now at home on senior night? To the Badgers' credit, they showed some resolve. They showed a little grit. They showed some toughness. They outscored Nebraska 24-3 to after falling down 14 to nothing. They slowly got back into the game. They get it to a point where they're up by a field goal. Nebraska scores to get it to overtime, 17-17 in overtime. Maybe the biggest make-or-break call by Luke Fickle so far in his tenure as the head coach. They get down to fourth and one inside the Nebraska five-yard line. With the way the Badgers have played this year and how bad they've been on fourth down, as a fan, you're thinking, just kick the field goal. There's a pretty good chance your defense will be able to hold Nebraska to a field goal attempt. And field goal attempts in college, anything longer than 30 yards or 25 yards feels like it's a bit of a gamble. Just kick the 18 or whatever would have been 20-yard field goal, 19-yard field goal at the three-yard line. Take the three-point lead and then take your chances. Luke Fickle said, no, we're going for it. We're going for a win. If we get a touchdown, we're going to win. That's the feeling that the coaches clearly had. And I do feel like I felt like that on some level. I just didn't believe that they were going to go out there and go for it on fourth down and one. They get that on a Braylon Allen shotgun carry inside. Mordecai, though, can't be under center. That's a part of that. I see a lot of conversation on Badger Twitter about why don't we just go under center or go with a quarterback sneak or get under center and hand it off. I don't think with his thumb injury he is able to receive the ball that way. That's why they're always in shotgun and running out of shotgun at this point, even though they were doing that at the beginning of the year too. They get that first down and get it to the two-and-a-half-yard line. The next carry, Braylon Allen had the offensive line. Basically, it was a tush push. They push him in for the touchdown. They get the 24-17 lead. The defense gets an interception late, and they get a win, and they do it despite more injuries. We haven't talked a lot about that because the play has been so uninspiring for the Badgers. I don't know that you can point to injuries and say the record would be any different. However... During the course of the year, you have lost a lot of key players to injury. Lost Mordecai for a time. A lot of guys have gone down, and Braylon Allen hasn't been healthy. He was not healthy at all on Saturday. He not only wasn't close to 100%, I would say just visually, did it look like Braylon Allen was even close to 75% or maybe even 50% on Saturday? But he grinded it out. 22 carries when he was not expected to play. He only gets 62 yards, 2.8 yards a carry. Obviously not aesthetically pleasing numbers. The fact that he went out there and gutted it out, though, and then gets two touchdowns on top of that, they had to overcome that. Hunter Waller, who had those comments at the end of the Northwestern game, he goes down in the second half. He can't come back. He is arguably your best player overall and certainly your best player on defense. Will Pauling has been the best wide receiver on this team. He got hurt and could only play sparingly in the second half. You could tell they were just deploying him when they felt like it was a big moment, and then he would go and sit on the sideline for a couple of plays. He ends up with a big night, eight catches for 80 yards. Pauling's having a hell of a year. When you look back at the season, there's not a lot to love. He might be one of those silver lining guys, though. If he plays on Saturday against Minnesota, and I don't know if that's going to happen, He has a chance, not a big one, but he has a slight chance to help either tie or set the record for receptions in a year from a Badger wide receiver. He'd need a ton. Jared Abraderis has the record at 78 catches. Will Pauling after Saturday has 64. You need a 14-15 catch day, but it's not totally out of the realm of possibility, especially with how bad that Minnesota defense has been. He has had an impressive year 
when you look at what the wide receiving core was heading into the year and what we were excited about with DK and CJ Williams, who hasn't done much of anything this year. Vinny Anthony had kind of a good game on Saturday. Pauling has stepped up. The transfer from Cincy, a Luke Fickle guy, having a tremendous year. What does he have? 64 catches for one on the year. 675 yards, almost 11 yards a catch, three touchdowns on the year. This team has battled through injury. Again, I don't know if the record looks any different if everybody's fully healthy for the whole year. It has become clear at this juncture. The talent level wasn't where we thought it was. The buy-in isn't where we thought it was. They're probably 6-5 and five, even as a fully healthy team all the way through. I mean, Mordecai maybe wins them the Indiana game. Maybe that's one win difference. It doesn't look a whole lot different, and our feeling isn't a whole lot different. That is something we haven't discussed a ton, though. The Badgers have had a litany of injuries this year, and that continued on Saturday. But they got out a win. They show a little want to. They show a little fight back on Saturday, and they get the win. They get to 6-5. and five. They're 4-4 four and four in conference. Look, Badger teams in the past with what that Nebraska team is right now, and Matt Rule seems to have them turning in the right direction. But with what that team has talent-wise, a 2017 Badger team or a 2018 Badger team or any of the Barry Alvarez Badger teams or even the Gary Anderson Badger teams and certainly the Brett Bielema Badger teams, on senior night in prime time against that Nebraska team, they win that game 38-10 to or 45-7. to This is not those Badger teams, though. We know that now. They're not a very good team, and they got a win. And when they were down 14-0 based on the way the game went against Northwestern and based on the way the game went at Indiana – they easily could have cashed it in again and taken another one on the chin on senior night. They didn't do that, though. I thought that was mildly encouraging. I don't think anybody's throwing a parade down State Street for that win on Saturday. Mildly encouraged, though, that this team that had its heart questioned by its leader after the loss to Northwestern and had its heart questioned by Tanner Mordecai, its starting quarterback as well, after falling down 14 to nothing, they seem to get a little angry. They seem to have a little grit in their teeth and say, all right, we're not going to let this happen again, especially at home. They win it 24 to 17. They are bowl eligible now for the 22nd consecutive year. They now get 15 extra practices. I was wrong on the last podcast where I said it was an extra week of practices and how valuable that is viewed as the coaching staff. If you can just get bowl eligible for a young team in transition with a first-year head coach of that program, how big those extra practices are. They get 15 extra practices now. No matter what bowl they get, go bowl game they go to, they get that two weeks full on or a little more than two weeks of extra practices because they are now bowl eligible, and they certainly will get a bowl bid. They are at Minnesota this Saturday for as disappointing as this season has been in so many ways. This team does have a chance, if they can show some of that resolve they showed against Nebraska, to end the year on a positive trend. If they get the win on Saturday and they get the ax back and then you go to whatever bowl game that they're going to go to in mid to December where it's in Phoenix or Florida, it'll be at 10 p.m. on a Wednesday. If you win against win against the Gophers and get the ax back and you win that bowl game for as disappointing as this season has been, for as big of a letdown as year one under Luke Fickle has been, where we went from Luke Fickle talking about competing for championships before the year began, and then we ended talking about bowl eligibility in late November. For as disappointing as it has been, you can enter the offseason feeling okay about the last three weeks. We got the win against Nebraska on senior night, won the whatever it is, the Freedom Trophy. 
We got the axe back after two years, or is it three? Two years of it being in Minnesota, and then we won a bowl game, and we got to eight and five, three straight wins, couple of trophy game wins, and a bowl game win heading into the offseason. That will look good recruiting-wise for Luke Fickle and his recruiting staff as they get set for 2024. Nice win, though. Just nice to see both teams win. Nuke Lelouch winning, it's like better than losing. It was nice to see them get a win in front of a pretty decent crowd. It was a slow-arriving crowd, and as we talked about on Friday's podcast, you could get tickets to that nebraska Patrick game for about 2 bucks on StubHub. By the time they got to overtime, though, the crowd was into it, and it looked like a, what, 80% or 85% full camp Randall? That was at least one redeeming win for this season, Badgers over Nebraska on Saturday. Let's talk about the Bucks real quick. Nice weekend on Friday in pool play, in-season tournament play. They blow the doors off of Charlotte. Point differential does matter. They win 130-99. That's why their starters were in so late, though. That is one dynamic that's different from in-season tournament pool play with, with the other regular season games. In any other regular season game, up by 20 with five minutes or whatever it was, six minutes to go, you don't see Giannis out there. You don't see Dame out there. But in a tiebreaker situation in pool play, point differential could be the determining factor as to whether or not you move on to the tournament in Vegas or not. That's why you saw those guys in there. That was one interesting aspect of the in-season tournament that we hadn't seen yet on Friday as they win by 31 points against Charlotte. And Giannis had a good distribution game on Friday, had almost 10 assists. Dame led the way. They are now 2-0 in pool play, and they lead their pool in point differential. Next pool play game will be coming up on Friday at Pfizer Forum with the Wizards in town. Then they go and get a win against Dallas. That was, to me, the most impressive part of the Bucks' weekend. You come back on a back-to-back, which, as we know in the NBA now, it's you don't have many expectations on the second game of back-to-back, especially if that second game is against a quality team, which this one was. The Mavericks came into Saturday with a 9-3 and record, third-best record in the West. They had two days of rest as well. Nine and three Mavericks team, two days of rest versus the Bucks that are coming off of a game on the road on Friday. Bucks were down in the fourth quarter. They fight back, though. Giannis was so good at the rim. 14 of 14 on shots at the rim. He put in 40 points. Dame had a good distribution game. You're seeing more from some of these young guys off the bench. Bobby was consistent. Dame and Giannis on Friday and Saturday. Hey, it's almost like they need some time to get things figured out, and they are getting it figured out. That two-man game on Friday and Saturday looked a lot better than what we've seen so far this year, and you've got to assume it's only going to get better and better. And Adrian Griffin, who was much maligned all week, he ends up with a 4-0 week, a couple of road wins, and a quality win against the top right now Western Conference team in Dallas. Maybe Adrian Griffin needed some time as well. Maybe he needs some time to get comfortable, too, as a first-year head coach. What else was good from Friday's game? Brooke had another decent game, 12 points. Off the bench, Patty Connaughton hit some big threes late. He is starting to round into form, too. 16 points off the bench, 6 of 12 shooting. As we said, Bobby consistent, 11 points, 7 boards, a couple of assists in that 132-125 to win over Dallas. Bucks are now 9-4. and four. They've won four games in a row. They are on the floor again tonight. They are in Washington The Wizards are in their pool for the in-season tournament. This game, though, is not a pool play game. The game on Friday will be. However, after you get past tonight, we have our first matchup with the Boston Celtics on Wednesday, the night leading into Thanksgiving. We'll see how many of the key players actually play. 
I would think it's on ESPN that there's going to be pressure from the league to make sure the key components are out there, that Dame is out there, Giannis is out there, and for the Celtics, Jalen will be out there, Tatum will be out there, Drew will be out there. It is going to be the first Celtics-Bucks matchup, and Drew versus his old team and facing off against the guy that they acquired that eventually led to Drew leaving town. I didn't realize that that was on the docket this week until I looked at the schedule last night. Ooh, we get a good one this week. At Washington Monday, at Boston Wednesday, and then pool play at home on Black Friday with the Wizards at Fiserv Forum. I've got to play this clip real quick from Giannis, too. He was talking post-game after the Mavericks win about getting that chemistry going with Dame, and it's going to take some time, and they have a lot of games left. How many games do they have left, Giannis? What's the game today? First, man, come on, man. We got 69 more games. Yeah. 69. I like that number. <laughs> I like that number. 69, huh? Hey, come on, man. We got 69 more games. 69. I like that number. I like that number. 69. Freaky time. The man has no filter, and it's another thing that we just love about Giannis. They do have 69 games remaining, but a big one on Wednesday. You want to win tonight. They should be able to beat this Wizards team that is battling already for a number one pick. This Wizards team only has two wins on the year, and coming into the year, they would have been the odds-on favorite to be the worst team in the league in the league that will have the number one overall draft pick next June. Hopefully, you can take care of both of those games, but the one that you have highlighted, starred, asterisks, bold, italicized, is the matchup in Boston Wednesday that'll be on national TV at 6.30. Let's wrap it up and talk about Woodruff. <sighs> it's just, it's tough. There was just a, it's a bad confluence of elements where this team is headed into a soft rebuild at least. And this is a team that, even though Mark Atanasio hasn't come out and said that, it is pretty clear that as they are headed to a rebuild, they are clearing out some money. And the injury to Woodruff is going to keep him out the entirety of next year. The tender deadline was on Friday at 7 o'clock. As we talked about on Friday's podcast, they had the option to tender him a, a contract for the 2024 season, knowing that he was not going to pitch in 2024. They had the option to maybe give him a two-year deal that's backloaded where he'll rehab in 2024. He'll come back in 2025. He'll have a chance to showcase himself in Milwaukee in 2025. And then if he shows he's healthy and he's still a good pitcher, he'll have a chance to cash in one more time in 2026 with the Brewers or with a different team. And the other option was to non-tender him, and then he just walks away as a free agent. I thought they'd trade him, even though, as we said on Friday, you'd get maybe 30 cents, 40 cents on the dollar, given that he's not going to pitch next year. My feeling was he would end up getting traded or they'd get to the two-year deal. I wouldn't have guessed non-tender, but I understand it, I suppose. I would have preferred... And maybe they did try to work that out, a two-year, 20 mil or $30 million deal. Maybe Woodruff's side or his agent didn't think that that was a good deal for Woodruff. And if he can get back to being fully healthy after a year of rehab, maybe he could, after the 2024 season, still sign a three- or four-year deal somewhere. Feels unlikely, but perhaps. That would would have been a conversation, I would imagine, between the Brewer hierarchy, Atanasio, Woodruff, and his agent about maybe a backloaded two-year deal. That was what I was hoping for because we all love Woodruff. His home run against Kershaw in the playoffs goes down as probably a top-five moment in the last 20 or 30 years of Brewer baseball. And the guy just shoves. He is, when he's healthy, he is the all-time ERA leader in Brewer franchise history. When you look at that, trio of starters that had had such good years the last two or three years of Woodruff, Burns, and Peralta, even though Burns had the Cy Young in 2021. I always felt like Woodruff, if I had to pick one of those guys for one start, 
Woodruff was the guy I would go with. He was the guy in a lot of playoff matchups that they did go with. He burst onto the scene coming out of the bullpen for that 2018 team that did not have a lot of very good, successful starting pitchers that year. It's just sad to see it end that way. By all merits, he was a likable clubhouse guy. We loved his interviews. He kind of had a little Brett Favre to him, the good the good kind of Brett Favre, not the Crocs welfare-stealing Brett Favre, the good kind of Brett Favre. had that southern accent and kind of that good old boy feel, and he was nothing but positive. It's just it's it's tough to lose a guy of that caliber when he's healthy and that kind of locker room guy as well. And it does end an era of Brewer baseball. I was talking to one of my broadcast partners for some of the college basketball teams I called games for, and it's hard to believe. I feel like I kind of felt in 2011 where when Prince left, we sat back and said, how did we not win anything? How do we not win a World Series with uh, healthy and prime Prince and Braun and Hart and Hardy in the middle of that lineup? I feel the same way now with how did we not win anything? How do we not get to a World Series when you had all that homegrown pitching of Burns, Woodruff, and Peralta? And now you're at a spot where Woodruff is gone in all likelihood. Adam McCalvey wrote an article on the Brewer website that kind of said, oh, the door might be slightly open. The window is open a crack, perhaps. If he gets through rehab and he's healthy, maybe there would be a chance for a reunion there. I don't feel like that's too likely. But he's not on the team anymore. In all likelihood, you're trading Corbin Burns in the offseason, and that's it. And only Freddie's going to remain. And maybe he, he is even on the trade block. I think pretty unlikely given how cheap he is and how good he is when he's healthy and how awesome his numbers have been, his strikeout totals this year. And for what you're paying him, it would make no sense to get rid of Freddie. If somebody blows you away with an offer, though, and you're looking to rebuild, maybe. But just to get past this now, and Woodruff is not a pitcher for the Brewers anymore, and Burns is likely on his way out, to have not won anything with all that homegrown pitching, and Hayter and the whole deal is, is kind of frustrating. But that's where we ended with the non-tender deadline on Friday. All right, we'll come back on Friday morning. No work for me on Friday, but we will do a podcast because we have to recap that Packer game. Whatever happens in that Packers-Lions game on Thursday, we will be discussing that with a kitchen table, food, coma, turkey, tryptophan hangover podcast on Friday morning. Should be up by around 10 or 10.30 on Friday morning. My dog will be napping next to me, I am sure. Have a really safe, enjoyable, happy Thanksgiving, would you please? We're hosting, so I'm looking forward to having a lot of family in town. The house is clean now. Nobody can touch anything for the next 48 to 72 hours. Nobody touches anything. Nobody poops. Nobody poops in our house now until <laughs> until Thursday. The toilets are clean. The bathrooms are clean. Everything is clean. We look like a reasonable household right now. Have a happy, safe Thanksgiving. We'll chat with you Friday.